Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. Turning your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. That's where we're going to be this evening is Ephesians chapter 6. And uh, if you are new to the Bible, um, there are really two different sections um, of the Bible. Uh, There is the Old Testament and there is the New Testament. And Ephesians is in the New Testament. It's really the story of the church. It's the story of um, these guys called apostles, basically these leaders in the church, planting churches, writing letters to churches, um, really shaping churches. And so I find often that as a church plant, you know, we're in our, I guess it's now our fourth year of being a church plant. uh, I really love looking at these letters. I think they're really appropriate for Uh, our season for where we're at, just amazing, uh, full of wisdom. So once you're at Ephesians chapter 6, stand up, okay? So once you get there, stand up. This is a good one to stand up for. You'll see why. This is a good one to stand up for. Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to begin in verse 10. You don't need to read out loud, but follow along with me. This is the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all. Everybody say all. The flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for all the Lord's people. This is the word of the Lord. You can grab your seat. The essence of spiritual warfare is the battle between truth and lies. That's what it is. You're like, what is spiritual warfare? It is the battle between truth and between lies. And we ended last week's message with this conclusion. Spiritual warfare is the Christian life. And this life is learning how to walk in the authority and power of truth, even when the serpent is whispering in your ear lies and doubts and partial truths. Spiritual warfare is the Christian life. And so what I want to talk about this evening, and we started at like a, you know, when we started the series, we started at like a 30,000 foot theology of uh, what, what, are the, what is the demonic? Who are these, these wayward, you know, Paul talks about it right here in this passage. He's talking about uh, rulers and authorities and powers and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And we, in the first message, we talked about these, uh, what we called wayward Elohim, this, uh, this description of these heavenly created beings who fell along along with the serpent, and decided to work against God's good plan of seeing heaven come through Eden on earth. And we've slowly been kind of descending the plane to get a little bit more practical. So tonight, what I want to talk about is how we practically wage war against deception, accusation, and temptation. 
We talked a little bit about uh, last, last week about how these are the three things that the devil does. These are the three things that he speaks into our lives in order to stop heaven from coming in us and then through us. He uh, aims to deceive, he aims to accuse, and he aims to tempt people. Uh, and, and really, this is the ancient, like it's the ancient strategy of the serpent. It's believe the serpent instead of believing God. That's what he's been doing from the very beginning. It's believe this voice, don't believe his voice. And, and what I want you to see, and we don't have time to, this is going to be a long enough message as is. What I want you to see is that from the beginning, it is our agreement with the serpent that empowers hell on earth. So, so a lot of people are there, you almost, we have this belief as Christians sometimes where you can almost just catch a, a, a demon. It's like, oh, I just caught one. And, and it, it came on me, I wasn't doing anything. Next thing you know, boom, I just caught a demon and now I'm oppressed by a demon. Um, I, I definitely, I have this little metaphor that like demons are like tennis balls looking for Velcro and they're just gonna launch themselves at you and just try to, get, try to find a place that sticks. I, I totally agree with that. But they only stick where you agree with them. From the very beginning, this is why the serpent doesn't come into the garden with a gun or with a bazooka or with a, a knife. It, he has no authority there. So he can't do that. He comes into the garden with a suggestion. Believe me instead of believing God. The essence of spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare then, if that's the case, it is about what you think. Because if demons or the devil can get you to think their way, then they can get you to act their way. All of life is about voice. All of life is about voice. Which voice are you listening to? Spiritual warfare is about recognizing the many voices of chaos and just how mental spiritual warfare is. Uh, we, we have so many different voices in our life. If you think about like, okay, the voices in my life, you, you have uh, the parental voice, right? You have like, the, no matter how old you are, you still have the voice of your mother or the voice of your father banging around inside your head as you go about your, your life, okay? Uh, we have voices of, uh, of our coaches in, in sports or, or in, uh, in music. The, these things that are, that, that these people who are important to us have said to us that somehow still remain and shape our worldview. Teachers, uh, media, mentors, uh, all of these voices, there, there really is no neutral ground for voices. They are either in reinforcing the, the voice of God or they are reinforcing the voice of the serpent. What we tend to think is we tend to think that there are certain things that are, there's spiritual talk and then there's unspiritual talk. And spiritual talk is what we're doing right now. This is very spiritual talk. We're talking about the Bible. But we misunderstand the, the nature of the spiritual and unspiritual because we think that spiritual things are only things without explanation in our current world. That's a mistake. Colossians chapter 1 says all things are being held together in Christ. All of creation is held together in Christ. Where did creation come from? It came from the breath of God, breathing his, his voice, breathing uh, the world into being. Is there anything that is not spiritual? No. Everything is spiritual. And, and so what I want to say is everything is contested. The voice of your parent could have been the voice of the serpent or could have been the voice reinforcing the voice of God in your life. The voice of the coach that you had could have been the voice of the serpent or it could have been the voice of God in your life. What I'm getting at is each of these voices have the capacity to be the voice of heaven or hell. And this matters because if we think something isn't a part of the spiritual world, then we think it's not a part of the spiritual battle when in reality it actually is and then we lose ground that we actually should be winning. We lose ground because we're like, oh, that's not spiritual, no big deal. Yeah, I know that they told me I was fat and ugly and never would do anything good in life, but that's not spiritual, that's kind of physical stuff. No, 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 it's all spiritual. I want you to see that believing lies is the primary way the serpent gets us off the heaven and earth project. And so how do we resist? How do we stand firm? What Ephesians is saying is that it is your job to resist with truth. It is your job to resist with the gospel. It is your job to resist with identity, with righteousness, with salvation, 
You're like, what do those words mean? We're going to talk about some of those words. But look down, verse 11, what does it say? Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And, and notice what this armor is, verse 14. It says this, stand firm then with the belt of truth. It's a, it's a belt made of truth. Buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness. It's this, I mean, think about what that is even saying. It's, this, it's the most proud piece of all armor. I am righteous. Think about that. The breastplate of righteousness. How, how audacious. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, in addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith. It's a, it's a shield made of your faith. Your belief in God actually shields you. It, it, it extinguishes all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. Our primary weapons of warfare, it's like, it's like you're like, I was coming for a spiritual warfare series where I, where I learned something new. No, no, no. The weapons of your warfare you've known about all along, but have you used them? Have you used them? These weapons are really, really effective. Uh, one of my favorite passages, 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, the weapons we fight with, think about what he said here, are not the weapons of the world. You're like, yeah, they're not. The breastplate of righteousness, never seen that before. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive, this is interesting, every thought to make it obedient to Christ. It's almost like Paul knew spiritual warfare happened in the mind. Now notice it's the gospel, it's identity in Christ, it's righteousness and the Holy Spirit's power that enables us to rip apart the deception, to rip apart the accusation, to rip apart the temptations of the enemy, or in this verse's language, the arguments and pretensions of the gospel. It's the same thing. It's the, it's the accusation, it's the temptation, it's the deception. So tonight, I want you to really understand, if you leave with nothing else, I want you to understand how practical this warfare is actually is and what, what it looks like. Uh, because I, I think a lot of us, we've heard like, take every thought captive, demolish strongholds, and we're like, okay, but how? Like, what does that actually look like? So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take each of these, temptation, deception, and accusation, and I wanna walk you through what I do, okay? A lot of this is gonna be Alex, okay? You may have other people that do other things. I'm gonna give you my opinion because I'm the one with the mic tonight. Okay, so here's what I do to wage war against the enemy in temptation. What... Uh, the devil will attempt to do is tempt you with good-looking fruit. That's all temptation is, is it looks really, really good. And, and if you remember, at the very beginning, Eve sees the fruit, and what does she say? Oh, it looks good. It's pleasing to the eye. She even thinks, I think that that actually might be, uh, I, I could gain wisdom through eating that. It, 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 may, it may have a, an added benefit beyond just what I'm seeing physically. All temptation is this, take and eat. Take this and eat it. And isn't that interesting that this is the very thing Jesus asked us to do in communion? This is my body, take and eat. He's reversing what happened in Genesis 3 through communion. But what the serpent will do is it, he, will, he will twist all material by promising that it can do more than it actually can. That all temptation is this. This material can do more for you than it really can. That's what he's trying to do. And, and, and he's, he's saying, this natural thing will give you a godlike experience in this life. If you drive this car, you'll feel like a god. If you have that kind of spouse, you'll feel like a god. If you get that kind of house, you'll feel like a god. If you have this you know, amount of followers on this social network, you'll feel like a god. And so he tempts us with things. Like, I, I think about like the common temptations in my life, like anger. Here's what he comes along and he says, no, you should be angry. If you dominate this physical issue, if you dominate this physical person, you will feel like a God, you'll feel better. So you have the right to be angry. This is huge in our culture today. Anger has become a virtue. <laughs> um, or, 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 or with lust. Here's what he does with lust. He says, aren't they something? Look at them. They're pretty amazing. Can you imagine what it would be like to be with them? It's lust. Or pride. <laughs> Nobody knows, but y you really are better than them. Do you see how they parent their kid? Do you see what they said in that situation? Do you see the clothes? that they, no, you're, you're a cut above, just a little bit. I want to show you 
what does Jesus do when he's tempted? What does Jesus do when he's tempted? Right after his baptism, Jesus has been meditating on the word of God. He's been meditating, because remember at his baptism, the heavens open up, and there's this voice from heaven, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This identity statement. Who is he? He's the son in whom the father is well pleased. Listen to him, right? And so Jesus spends the next 40 days fasting. What is he doing? He's like, I don't want anything to distract me from the identity statement I just heard. He's meditating on it. Now, if you know this story, you know that right after those 40 days, the enemy comes to tempt him. And, uh, and this is what happens. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God. Now, isn't that interesting? What did God just say about him? You, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Isn't that interesting? If you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, notice what he does when he's tempted. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What was the word that just came from the mouth of God? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. (sighs) What do you do when you're tempted? All temptation is take on a lesser identity than the one God has offered you. You quote the Bible to the devil out loud, and you do it as often as you need to. Okay? So you're tempted. What do you do? You say, no, this is what God has said about me. This is what is true about me. Now, what happens? In this story, he tempts him again. Next slide. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Imagine what that would have been like to have seen every kingdom, all the authority that would come from being a king on earth. Whatever you, you, you wanted, it was yours. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. What what does Jesus do here? Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus said to him, oh, that's my own fault, sorry. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. I should have looked closer at editing my slides. Okay, what is being said here? What's being said is that when Jesus is tempted, he does the same thing again. He quotes the Bible and he tells Satan, he tells the accuser, the tempter, to get away from him. So, and then, and then he has angels come and minister to him. He, he spends time uh, thinking on heaven. He spends time, and I think for us, it could be in worship. It could be reading the scriptures. It could be filling ourselves with what God's voice is saying about us. So, what do you do when you're tempted? Do you know the text? Do you know what he says about you? Have you do, are you spending time with him? That's what we do when we're tempted. Another thing that I do want to mention just quickly is, is uh, one, one of my mentors has told me what he does when he's tempted, and I found it to be very, very uh, helpful for me. What he does when he's tempted is he, he says two things. He says, I am, he recognizes it. He goes, I am being tempted by this thing right now. Why am I tempted by this? Because I think it will provide this for me. That's the lie. God, I know that I could do that thing. I have it within my ability to actually do that thing and go after it. But by your grace and what you say about me, I'll choose to, to live differently and to make a different choice. I, I have been doing this and I found it to be really, really helpful. God, this is the thing that I'm tempted by. Here's why I'm tempted by it. I could do it. I could honestly do it. It's within my ability to make that choice. But by your grace, your empowering presence, I will now choose to, to live differently. Very helpful. Uh, Secondly, deception. What do we do with deception? How do we practically fight again deception? Well, the devil deceives with, I think, two kinds of lies. There's negative lies and positive lies. And the negative lies look something like this. God doesn't care about you. God's not going to do anything. God is too busy. He's running a universe. Who are you to bother him? Your little measly issues and your measly prayers. You're unimportant and powerless and things will never get better, so you should just be hopeless. Those, those lies come all the time. All the time. Or there's positive lies. Here's, here's what a positive lie is. It's, hey, this thing is the most important thing. You should give your whole life to it. And in our world, it's money and politics. how many times did we sing I love you more than gold or silver? We're like, no, 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 really, I love you more than gold and silver. You're like, prophesy over yourself. I will love you more than gold and silver. I'll try to love you more than gold and silver. Why? Because the enemy comes alongside the God of mammon and he says, 
This will be everything for you. It will be everything for you. Give your life to it. Or in politics, this is so like, people are, families are splitting, not over religion anymore, they're splitting over politics. We have so uh, taken that religious fervor that, you know, I I heard um, actually Barry Weiss of the New York Times, well, formerly of the New York Times, I heard her recently say, um, I, to explaining the cancel culture that we're, that we're witnessing right now. And she said, I don't think there's a political reason for it. I think there's a cultural reason for it. People used to have this fervor in revivals that we're seeing now t- in cancellation and in tearing down systems and, and in everything that we saw this last, uh, uh, not this last summer, but the summer before. It is religious fervor with which people are approaching their political worldview. And, and why is that such a lie? Well, here's why it's a lie. It's a lie because the enemy doesn't want you thinking or working for the kingdom of heaven. He wants you thinking and working for the kingdom of this earth. It's the temporal taking up more headspace than the eternal. It's the ultimate deception. So what do we do? Either we're tempted to think, oh, I'm nobody, God doesn't care, and just kind of shrink. Or, this is such an important focus, and why isn't my church talking about it, and how come we don't have somebody out there doing something about this thing, and we should all care about this? What do we do? How do we fight that? I think we come to church. <laughs> I do. I, it doesn't have to be this church if you're like, I don't like organized religion. Well, it's nice of you to show up, but you can go, and you can meet in your homes. You can have worship night. I don't care what you do, but we should continue to gather. Why? Because we need people of faith around us in some regard to keep the truth in focus. It's like, I'll tell you what, when I am not, when I, I'm not at church or I take, I take a week off, two weeks off, I'm on a vacation or something like that, I feel it. I personally feel it. I'm like, whoa, uh, my discipleship, you know, like those little boosts in um, Mario Kart where you get on the, the boost and it just launches you. I'm like, that's church for me. It's like, oh yeah, boom, okay, that's where we're going. If I, if I, I'm like trying to do the race without the boost, without church, okay? So church really matters to me. When we, when we worship God together and we enjoy his presence, you're like, oh, that's right. What was I thinking? What was I thinking? I was, I've been deceived. And we strengthen ourselves in the Lord. We strengthen ourselves in the, in the Lord together. I think another thing that's very important is we, we know the truth and we stand on the truth. This is going to be the common theme throughout tonight. I, 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 just this last week, I had this thing happen to me that has never happened to me uh, in the past 10 years of ministry. I had this thing happen to me where I was terrified to speak. I speak all the time. I've spoken in front of thousands of people. I have no problem speaking. Not a problem. I have lots to say. Uh, but I'm, sitting, I'm standing over here, and all of a sudden, I am just hit with this fear. Oh, my gosh. My heart is pounding. I'm like, uh, I don't really want to do this. It was the hardest I've ever had to fight to, like, okay, I'm going to speak. I really will speak. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. I was almost just like, maybe we should just have a worship night. Um, and, and, I was, and so what did I do? I pulled out the scriptures. I got to Colossians chapter two and I said to the, to the enemy, I said, he has made a spectacle of you on the cross. He has disarmed and defeated you. All things are under his feet. I am seated in the heavenly realms at the right hand of Christ, which means you are under my feet. You will not boss me around. This is our church. This is, this is God's house and I'm gonna speak tonight. Okay, none of you knew that, right? Okay, uh, you didn't know that was going on. That's going on. What is that? That's strengthening myself in the Lord. I could, I could go, why doesn't my church encourage me more to speak? Oh, that's wimpy stuff. No, what I want is I want, the, I want to build the kind of people that say, no, I will take responsibility for strengthening myself in the Lord. I will take responsibility for standing on the truth. I've been given enough truth to stand on, and I can stand firm. It needs to be said, this is your responsibility to strengthen yourself. It was your responsibility. Uh, actually, one of the um, previous pastors at George Fox, she's not there anymore, but uh, when I was there, she, she told this incredible story. Her friend was going through a very difficult time, and she really needed a friend, and so she called her over to her house and said, will you just counsel me through this issue? And she said, yeah, sure, I'll meet you in the bedroom. Go in the bedroom. Um, I'm going to run to the restroom real fast, and, we'll, and we'll, we'll talk in there someplace private. And uh, her friend walks into the bedroom. She walks right behind her and shuts the door and holds it tight. And it's like... Her friend's like, what are you doing? She's like, you don't need to talk to me, you need to talk to him. Sometimes we try to, it's like, look, I talked about community, community matters. No, what I'm also saying is that it does matter, but it really matters what you do with your mind and how you steward truth, okay? Paul talks to Timothy in uh, 1 Timothy, and he says, fight the good fight, fight the battle with the prophecies that have been made about you. 
So if you don't have a prophecy made about you, if, you don't, if nobody's ever prophesied over you, you're coming down to the front tonight and somebody's gonna pray over you. It's so important that we know what God thinks. That's how Jesus fought the temptation. He was, he was there, he's like, if you're the son of God, he's like, <laughs> I actually am. Did you check out my baptism? It was just 40 days ago, it was incredible. Okay. Where I want to place the rest of my focus this evening, and here's really where this message is going to get a little bit long and a little intense. So if you've been snoozing, wake up. I've been seeing some of your like, eyes are starting to kind of fall down. Okay, wake up. Uh, where I want to place a significant focus tonight is on accusation. It's on accusation. I think this is one of the, the main ways that, that I've seen in, in, in our church, I've seen in the church, that the devil uh, gets a foothold and he moves people off of uh, the heaven on earth project. Um, the devil will use accusation to undermine much of the good kingdom work that we are called up to by Jesus, just by accusing us. The goal of accusation is twofold. It's to reduce our courage and it's to reduce our faith. And there are many things uh, that the devil will accuse us of um, in order to reduce our courage and reduce our faith. But tonight I want to focus on one topic, and that is the topic of the flesh. You're like, I didn't know that was an issue. It's an issue. The topic of the flesh. Last week we defined the flesh this way. The flesh for Paul represents the way of life before coming into Christ. And it is a life dominated by trying to get significance outside of dependence on God, which inevitably leads to all of sin. All sin is you going, oh, I remember how I used to live and where I used to find significance and where I used to, uh, I didn't have to wait for God to show up in my life. I could just go make things happen for myself. That's, that is the, the base of all sin. And so the accusations around the flesh for believers, it looks something like this. These are the accusations that I hear from the enemy that I've heard you hear from the enemy as well. You're a fake. Your weak moments define you more than the cross. You're a failure of a Christian. Just pathetic. The flesh will always dominate you and your life will essentially be an internal struggle. You're not really free. Death is your real savior because only then will you actually be righteous. It is a direct attack on the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. Take them off. Give him your head. Give him your heart. And we hear that. We hear those accusations because of what we do, the sin that we participate in, or whatever it is. And if you have a theology that says that life is a battle between your spirit and your flesh, a sort of Jekyll and Hyde, you will find that your struggle isn't against demons, but against yourself. And the demons simply confirm your belief. You make it easy on them. You agree. Yeah, I shouldn't be in this kingdom business. You go, yeah, it is actually a big deal. And yeah, my flesh probably always will be there. And so they have, they, their job is easy. They're like, hmm, neutralized. Not going to be a threat anymore. Your courage is gone and your faith decreases. And so we're going to kill this way of thinking tonight. They have like one mission tonight. This is war against this way of thinking. So why does this accusation stick? Why do we have this accusation and we go, oh, yeah, it probably is true. I think there's three reasons. The first reason is that every human wants to be righteous. Every single one of us wants to be righteous. Now, what does that mean? Well, to be righteous is to be right with someone. It's to be right with someone. So like think of a landlord, if you, if you rent or when you used to rent, think of a landlord. If you don't pay your rent, are you right with your landlord? You're like, I actually would prefer not to see them. I have a few months that I've let slip by, right? You're not right with them unless you pay and then you are right with them. Righteousness is the same way. It's righteousness is being right with someone, and everybody wants this, but probably not with their landlord. <laughs> Everyone has a person or a group or a goal that they want to be right with. Essentially, everybody has a God that they want to appease. So think about the kid who trains for their sport, and the whole, the whole reason why they put all the energy into their sport is because of what their dad or their mom will think about them if they do. They want to be righteous with their parents. Or think about the father who is, he works himself to the bone just trying to scrape together enough money to be in that social club or to have that status in culture to be respected. He's trying to be righteous with a certain socioeconomic status. 
Or, or think about the woman who thinks if she just gets the degree, then she'll really show them. She's trying to be righteous, right with a group of people. Or the person that thinks if they just hit that weight, then they'll really be in. They'll really be something. There's a group of people, there's an ideal that they are trying to be right with. And I want you to see all those ways of being righteous are gotten through work. All of them require you work really, really hard to be right with those people, those groups, those ideals. So in all of life, this is how everybody functions. Everybody you know functions this way. In all of life, we are taught to be right with our God. If we're going to be right with our God, we need to work, and we need to, and, and, and then uh, we need to work ourselves as hard as we can to get that, that goal. And then what happens when we become Christians is we transfer this mentality to our Christianity. And so we think, oh, a battle with the flesh. That sounds like the right kind of work. It's good to battle your flesh. It's good to have that internal struggle between your spirit and your flesh, just trying to really tan. No, I'm, I'm like squishing the flesh down as best as I can so that I can be right with God. That's the first reason why this accusation sticks. The second is that most people get their theology not from the scriptures, but from their experience. And their experience reinforces the collaboration of the devil with their flesh. So they go, well... I am being accused, and I, and I know Alex said on Sunday that it's probably the devil, but look at my life. Look at what I just did. The flesh really does have a hold on me still. And then thirdly, we have an incorrect belief about Romans chapter 7. You're like, hey, I like Romans 7. Okay, well, hang on. Romans 7 has been used to build a flesh struggle in the Christian In my opinion, this is my opinion, hear that? My opinion is that this has done unnecessary damage to the confidence in God's power and our standing with him. (laughs) You're like, oh, don't don't hurt Romans 7. I'm not going to hurt it. We're going to interpret it correctly. So when the devil comes and whispers, you'll always be a sinner. You'll never do anything great for God. You'll always struggle to be righteous. We go, well, there is that passage in Romans 7. There is that Romans 7 passage. Oh, I do what I don't want to do, what I do want to do, I don't do, and uh, yeah, it's just the Christian life. Hmm. Well, this is going to take some focus. Are you ready? <laughs> okay, wake up. Turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, to the left in your Bibles. That's where we're going to be uh, beginning. And uh, what, what we're going to do is we're going to take the entire chapter 7 within the context of the previous and following chapters. That sounds like a good idea to do theologically, right? That's how we want to do our theology. What's the context of this? Now, to catch us up while you're turning there, here is the message of the letter to the Romans so far. Here's the general message that is being sent to them. Humans have gone astray and sinned through their worship of other gods. It's in chapter 1. God's wrath on sin has changed since the cross. This is if if you need to like snap a photo, snap a photo. Uh, God is no longer actively causing bad to teach people lessons, like oftentimes in the old covenant. He is simply allowing people to feel the consequences of their actions and hoping that the kindness of the cross will lead people to repent. For those who do recognize their need of God, repent, and believe that the death and resurrection of Jesus counts for them, they have faith like Abraham and become righteous and reign in life. Okay, that's the, that's, I mean, come on, that's a little bit impressive, right? That's like five chapters in a paragraph, okay? Now, you're like, okay, tell me something new. I've heard that before. All right, well, once all of this is established, Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. Look down your Bibles, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died, everybody say died, to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Before we died to sin, we lived in sin. It was the air we breathed, but now we don't have to live in sin. Why? Well, we died. You're like, but when did that happen? Okay, look down at verse 3. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? When you were baptized, you died. Verse 4. 
We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. You die with him, you get raised with him. That's what he's saying. For we know that the old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled, everybody say ruled, by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. When you were baptized, you died. If you, if you haven't been baptized, you should get baptized. Okay, it's kind of, it's, it's a big deal. When you were baptized, you died. Your old self was ruled by sin. That self got crucified. So now, guess what? You're free from sin. What does that mean practically? It means this. You do not have to sin. Have you ever thought about that? Like, Because sometimes you're like, no, no, I'm always going to sin. I don't think so. You don't have to sin. Why? You died to sin. Will you still sin? If you choose to. But you don't have to. Skip down to verse 11. So... In the same ways, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let, everybody say let, sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. For sin to reign in your life, what has to happen? You have to let it. (laughs) So many Christians, we live as though, sin's always just gonna reign, and I'm gonna try to make it not reign. No, no, no. You have to let sin reign. You're now alive to God. What power? Think about that. You won't always sin. You have the ability not to sin. That's incredible. But here comes Romans 7. You're like, oh, this is going to show him. Here comes Romans 7. Now, what you need to know about Romans 7 is that Paul begins this discourse about the law. And it could get kind of confusing, like caught up like, why are we talking about the Levitical law? I'm not even Jewish. You know, we've been grafted in. There's no law. It's the law of the Spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to get to all of that. But what you need to know is that God's solution to the worship of other Elohim is the law. You're like, why? Well, he wanted to make Israel distinct from the other nations and to teach Israel how to interact with his presence. Now, why does that matter so much? Well, remember Babel? At Babel, we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 32, we're told right after Babel, God gives over all the nations to various gods, okay? But he says, but Israel, you're gonna be my possession. What's the next chapter? The next chapter is him calling out Abraham, okay? So he's like, so, but I'm gonna have my own special people and I want you to be distinct because you don't worship the lesser Elohim. You worship the real true God, Yahweh, Okay? So he gives them a law. Here's how you interact. Here's what you eat. Here's all of this stuff. The law, good or bad? Good. It's a good thing. It shows the the nations, this is what a lifestyle with Yahweh is like and what is possible if you want to become a part of Israel. But there's a problem with the law too. What we'll find out is that the law causes this tension with anyone who's under the law. Anybody who's under the law, there's this tension that takes place. The law reveals their sin, and that's a good thing. Like, we need to know where we should repent so that we can come in line with God's design, right? So it's good. Like, it's like, okay, that's a good thing. That's a good aspect to the law. But it puts people on a righteousness treadmill of working to be right with God through good actions. That's what the law does. It, 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 he's going to talk about this. It, it births in him uh, this, this acknowledgement. Okay, I didn't really know this was sin. That's actually sin. It's not the way I was designed, okay? But it puts us on this righteousness treadmill. If I just do the right things, I'll be right with God. Now, in the first two verses of chapter 7, Paul simply states this. He says this, a law is effective only on people who are alive. Would you all agree? If you die, no, no more seatbelt laws, Right? No more laws, okay? So it's very simple. He's just saying the law is effective on people who are alive. So let's follow his argument. Chapter 7, verse 4. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Verse 5. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, everybody say, realm of the flesh. 
the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But, verse 6, now by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not the old way of the written code. So think about this. When you got baptized, you died. We're all clear on that? Okay. You got, when you died, you got released from the law. Now, what does that mean for us who were never under the law? What it means is that you don't have to work at anything to be right with God. There's no, he's not leading with a law anymore. You died to all law, to all laws everywhere. It means you don't have to work to be right with him. You already are. So there is no tension internally. Do you see that? The spirit of God, what does he say? We're under, we used to be in the, in the realm of the flesh, but now we're in the realm of the spirit. What does that mean? The spirit of God is our new guide, not a list of rules. God, Jesus doesn't come down and say, here's your list of rules. He says, no, here's your connection, reconciliation to the father, okay? The law and the flesh can't conspire in that internal tension anymore because we died. We don't live under that law anymore. We don't live under any law. But let me ask you this. What if someone still believed the law of righteousness uh, through work still applied to them, even though they were in the law of the Spirit? Even though they, they lived in the Spirit, they had a relationship with God. What if they believed that they still had to do things in order to be right with God? Well, many people have believed that. Many of you probably still believe that this evening, at least subconsciously, in this kind of performing for God mentality. And um, so... Here's what Paul does next in this chapter. He says, perfectly, this is what it will feel like if that's the case in your life. This is what it will be like if if you are still somehow living underneath the law of righteousness, trying to be right before God. Flip over your page if you need to. Uh, Verse 15, here's what he describes. He says, I do not understand what I do. This is gonna be kind of confusing, but hang in there. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is the sin living in me. It's the sin and law struggle. For, verse 18, I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, I actually do that. This I keep on doing. Verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want, what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me the waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Have you ever felt that? (laughs) I have. I have. I've totally felt that. Because I have considered myself still in the performing for God mentality of the law even though I was in Christ. And so it began the war of law and flesh back up in my life. If only there was a solution. Verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Have you been delivered from that? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Now look over to Romans uh, 8 verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Do you see what this means? Don't worry about trying to work to be righteous. Don't even worry about your sin. You are free. Romans 7 is not normative if you have the Spirit. It is normative if you haven't died to the law. If you're trying to be right with God, even though you already are right with God, your flesh will act as though it isn't crucified. Do you understand what I'm saying? Verse three, here's what Paul uh, continues to say. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live according in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. What Romans 7 describes is the attempt to be perfect by your own work, to be right with God through your own behavior, and it's impossible. It's a trap. But the work of Jesus on the cross made being right with God a reality, a possibility, but only for those who live by the Spirit and don't go back to living by the law, to living by rules. Continues, verse six. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it. Verse eight, those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, this is such good news, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. You're not in the never-ending cycle of the flesh. What is the realm of the flesh? Like, what, what, are you, what is he talking about? The realm of the flesh is trying to solve earth's problem of sin with earth's solution rules. That's the realm of the flesh. Some of you guys are falling asleep. You need to wake up. Okay, wake up, wake up. Like, clap, do something, okay? This is really, really good news. The realm of the flesh, that realm you're not in unless you choose to go back and live in it, that realm is characterized by trying to solve earth's problem of sin with earth's solution of rules. If we just get the right rules, if I just do the right things, if I just have the right disciplines in my life, then I will really be in the realm of the spirit. Oh, no, no, no. It wasn't your rules or your disciplines that got you in the realm of the spirit. It was what he did on the cross. It was impossible for you to do that. In fact, you know it because the struggle was so intense but praise be to God, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To end, verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. That's pretty good news. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit that you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Do you see what he's saying? Here's a slide. This will help you out. If you try to be right with God when you, already when you have already died and been made right with God, your life will look like Romans 7 because you have chosen a relationship with rules and standards of practice over being a child. But if you allow your mind to be ruled by the Spirit, then you will really feel the no condemnation freedom of a child of God. There's not enough phones out taking pictures of that. <laughs> See, like, just leave it up there for, for a second. It is possible to be in Christ, but to have your mind ruled by the realm and solutions of the flesh. It's possible. You can go back and you can think that way. But that is not the goal. The goal is to be in relationship with God like a child is with their parent, not in relationship with a bunch of rules that keep you safe from sin. You are designed to take your place of confidence as a child of God to walk in your inheritance and the authority of heaven coming through your life. But if you believe you're still in the flesh, you will shrink from confidence and you will shrink from faith. What difference does this theology actually make? Let's bring it down to earth. What difference does this all make in our lives uh, personally? See, all, what, 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 the difference it makes is this. All of the internal and personal condemnation, all of the accusation from the devil has no place. It's got nowhere to stick. If you think you are a sinner and the flesh will always be an issue and you can't help but sin, the accusation will always find agreement and you will live like Romans 7. But if you see that no matter what, your nature has been changed from in Adam to in Christ and that you are a child of God, you can't be accused, it's all smoke. You can't be condemned, it's all mist. The struggle for righteousness is over. He gave it to you. You don't need to work for it breastplate of righteousness. You now live from a place of being right with God instead of living in a place of trying to be right with God. Do you see the difference? 
This changes everything. All of life is different. You don't have to do anything. There's no sport. There's no amount of money. There's no house. There's no spouse. There is nothing that you need to go and work for to get the righteousness, to be right with God, the thing that you so desperately desire. It's been given to you. It's been given to you. If all the rules are gone, if you've really died, there's no fear. You have nothing to be afraid of. Nothing touches your position as a child of God. It means that you have truth to fight with and you don't need to shrink. I think the main goal of this accusation is shrink. Don't be a threat. Don't worry about the kingdom. Worry about your own sin struggles. That's what the Christian life really is about. It's just about you struggling with your sin. No, it's not. It's about heaven on earth. So see tonight that our struggle with sin because I know that it is still, you're like, but it's still, yeah, I know, I know. We are learning how to walk in our new identity. Our struggle with sin isn't solved by thinking, it'll always be there, so I should be really careful. That's fear. It isn't solved through self-flagellation. That means that the cross wasn't enough stripes or wounds for Jesus. Our struggle with sin is solved through standing on the blood of Christ the completed work, and taking your place as a child of God with the very spirit of God coursing in your veins regardless of your behavior. I know that I did that. that. That's not me. That's not me. My identity is child of God. I'll stand on that. My identity is, is washed in the blood, baptized. I died to sin. I'll stand in that. This is how you stand firm and minimize the power of the devil to what it actually should be. <laughs> what it actually is, like Chris was talking about earlier. I think many people, when they think of getting, when they get saved, they think to themselves, okay, I'm gonna try to be like Jesus now. That's what Christians do. They try to be like Jesus. And the enemy comes to them and he says, he points at them and he says, oh, look how far your behavior is from his. You should shrink back. But that's not the gospel. When you come to Jesus, here's the gospel you are then treated from that point forward like you have died on the cross and you have become as perfect as Jesus. That's what it means to be in Christ. So the question now for each one of us tonight is this. Do you see yourself that way? Do you see yourself that way? There's a wonderful um, John Newton hymn that I want to end with that teaches us this identity. This is just beautiful. Here's what he writes in this hymn. He pleads before the throne his life and death in my behalf and calls my sins his own. What wondrous love, what mysteries in this appointed shine. My breaches of the law are his and his obedience mine. Let's stand to end. What I want to do is I want us to read Ephesians uh, chapter 6 out loud together. I want us to declare this over our lives, um, o- over our reality, over what we're going to step into this week. So let's, let's read this out loud together. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.